0: Sagar and Marshall here. Welcome back to The Realignment. All right, everyone, I am very excited to say that we have 662 reviews on Apple Podcasts. Just as a reminder, if you could help us out, scroll to the bottom of that Apple Podcast app and rate us five stars. It would be immensely helpful to us. It helps other people find the show. And after we hit 1,000, we will leave all of you alone. So you have an interest in making this all stop as soon as possible as well.
1: Speaking of things that we will definitely not stop after we get past 1,000, however, the realignment cues. A reminder, if you leave us a five-star written rating on Apple Podcasts with a question, or if you email us at realignmentpod at gmo.com, we will answer your question on air. So today's question is a very straightforward one from our friend, Selman. Hey, Sagar and Marshall, I'm wondering what you fellows think about modern monetary theory. And would you be willing to have someone who's a proponent and an opponent of MMT on the podcast? What do you think, Sagar?
0: Excellent question, Selman. I've actually spoken with Stephanie Kelton, I guess the, you know, mother of modern monetary theory on Rising a couple times. Totally would be willing to have somebody like her on the podcast. And actually, lucky for you, we address some of that in this episode today, which is a good segue, Marshall, to who do we have on the podcast?
1: We are speaking with Oren Cass. This is actually the second time that Oren has come on the podcast. He actually appeared back in February where he spoke about the founding of his new organization, American Compass. He's the executive director of that organization now. He previously was at the Manhattan Institute. And most importantly, and what makes him particularly interesting was he led the domestic policy part of Mitt Romney's election team in 2012. So he's a person who, despite being very young, has thought really deeply about these domestic policy issues.
0: Right. And look, people who watch Rising know Oren. If you've listened here for a while, you know him as well. Oren is one of the most interesting thinkers on the right because he's got those establishment credentials. This is Orrin Cass. This guy worked for Mitt Romney, right? And yet he's out there saying things like, hey, maybe the way that our financial markets work aren't all that good for American workers. And most recently, he just wrote a letter called "The conserva- how, Why Conservatives Should Care That Workers Should Have a Seat at the Table, which is essentially a conservative case for more organized labor and for better unions here in the United States. Now, that's outright heresy, people. And for a lot of you who are there and you're on the left, your biggest critique of me, your biggest critique of the populist right is if you guys really cared about workers, then you would be pro-union. And you know what? I agree with you. A lot of the politicians who call themselves populist right, people who've come on this podcast and I have mentioned, have been outright hostile towards unions while they were in office. It's something that I think is a blight on their records, and I think it's also a blight upon any burgeoning movement as well. So I wanted to feature and highlight One of the first conservative voices I've heard in a long time that actually makes that affirmative case. It makes it real. And that's actually, I think, the second best critique, which is that Soccer and Marshall, are you guys just talking to each other and a bunch of people online? Is this even a real thing? And I would say, yeah, it is a real thing. Somebody like Oren, with his credentials, with his level of influence, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, amongst politicians who are out there, and their ability to make this case, that matters. It makes it more real. So if the populist right is to ever become a real phenomenon, then this is a very small step in the right direction, but it's the correct step.
1: And what's so interesting about Oren, and this hopefully comes out in the episode, he's written about this, is there are so many interesting policy conversations that are happening sort of on background sort of in quiet little office spaces that you don't really know about so for example we know plenty of people who are working on the hill in DC who are working in think tanks who are writing who are doing really interesting debates on these topics but they're not particularly public and what's unique about Oren Tesager's point is he's willing to have those public conversations in a way that frankly puts himself out there it's like it's it's a lot of people i know are very friendly to unions. A lot of people with anonymous Twitter accounts will talk about how, yeah, the right should obviously lean into unions, especially given the fact that there's this populist shift going on right now. But Orrin is really that person who's putting some real meat on those bones. So that really comes through during this episode. So we'll let you guys get to it. And last but not least before we hit that, a shout out to Lincoln Network, who is doing the awesome job of continuing to support this podcast. I want to sort of talk to something that was stated in a review, actually, by someone who gave us a five star review. So, thank you, by the way. They said, however, we're concerned that this podcast is actually sort of put on like with a think tank, though, because that's <laughs> something they're skeptical about. And the thing that I really want to sort of laud Lincoln for is just being completely supportive of us. So, like, we are making all the editorial choices here. We're booking the guests. Like, Lincoln often helps us find guests, but we're really working really collaboratively there. So, I want to reassure you, Mr. Five Star Review, that we are able to do what we really need to do. And that's something that's really unique on Lincoln's part. That's definitely something that has not always been true. And that's definitely something that would be really hard to find in places like DC. So thank you, Lincoln, for helping us keep our integrity.
0: Just on that note, I think that listeners know me, and uh, if anyone was out there saying, you can't say something, Sagar, I'm pretty sure that's the thing I would be saying right next.
1: Anyway. But the real but, with, right, well, quick thing, but I what yeah. need to add for everyone, the way you can tell what Sagar is being puppet controlled is if you ever hear him say, but guys, what about the free market? In yeah, right. total <laughs> way. So, we'll, we'll, so if you guys have some ideas of safe words we should sort of use to show that something's going <laughs> wrong, please send those in to realignmentpod at Gmail. Dot com on to the episode.
0: All right. Ready? Yep. All right. Orrin Cass, welcome to the realignment.
2: Oh, thanks for having me.
0: Well, um, everybody who listens to this or watches Rising will know Oren, great friend of the show, great friend of the pod as well. He actually debuted his organization, American Compass, right here, which got its own, I want to add this, very own little Wall Street Journal attack ad that was made against him. Really hilarious. We actually did a whole Rising segment on it if anybody wants to go and watch that. The reason, Orrin I wanted to bring you in today is we're at We're, what, 54 days now till the election, the day that we're taping this. I guess it'll be 53 on the day that this comes out. There is a brewing battle for the soul of the Republican Party, so to speak, that's been accelerated as a result of the election, which will be accelerated more so, interestingly enough, if Trump both wins or if he loses. So I have laid it out probably in more bombastic terms, but as you see it, what are those ideological fractures within the Republican Party. Where are where and maybe give us a faces and examples of where people might lie along that ideological spectrum.
2: Yeah, I think a battle for the soul is is exactly the right way to put it. And, you know, the the Republican Party really going back at least 40 years has has represented this coalition of, of different perspectives. Any party is going to be a coalition and, and the Republican Party has had the, the economic libertarians, the, the social conservatives, and the, the foreign policy hawks. Uh, and that's sort of traditionally been called fusionism or Ronald Reagan uh, referred to it as the the three-legged stool. And it was a coalition that made a lot of sense. They you know these, these folks had a lot in common. Uh, and especially when the when the greatest challenge in the world was winning the Cold War, those were three sets of ideas that really belonged together, in a sense. I think uh, mm-hmm. what what I think we've seen in in the past couple of decades, though, is that changes in in reality on the ground have led to conflicts within the coalition. And you know, certainly we could have a long foreign policy conversation. That's that's not my specialty, but but I think the right of center's view on Foreign adventurism is probably changing for for good reason, um, but but within the more domestic and economic sphere, you have these two groups: libertarians and conservatives, who both really like free markets. Um, you know, they they care about them for a lot of reasons, but libertarians like free markets. Period. That's, that's 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 the mm-hmm. end of the analysis. For the most part, the, the free market is an end unto itself or else they're, you know, they at least have a ton of confidence that the free market is going to give you the best possible outcome. Uh, whereas conservatives really value markets, they see markets as uh, the, the best way to organize an economy, they, they preserve limited, limited, government, economic freedom, they create a nice private realm for uh, for, for individual and family and community action. Uh, but, but at the end of the day, they're, they're a tool, they're a a means to a flourishing society. And, and I think conservatives have a much richer sense of the way markets operate within and amongst other institutions, um, that, that the rules you have that shape how the market works, um, how the market is interacting with your education system, your labor system, your, even your, even, even your defense policy, uh. All that matters. And if, if we see markets not delivering the kind of widespread prosperity we want, which is what's been going on in recent years, I think, then conservatives stand up and say, wait, we have to do something about this. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's really the fight you're seeing on the right of center right now between uh, some folks who say, no, no, just maybe if we do a few more tax cuts, then, uh, then, then we'll really get the market back on track. Uh, or who say there's just no problem. And in fact, markets have been doing what we need. And those who say, no, we have real serious problems in this country and, and a, an effective, positive, conservative vision for the future is going to have to be one that recognizes the need for, for public policy to step in and, and and channel markets towards towards productive outcomes. Yeah. I want to read a quote from a piece you recently wrote in the
1: Financial Times where you referred to the soul, battle for the soul of the Republican Party. We cribbed this section from your op-ed, obviously, but... When you're talking about this conflict, you write, The reason for this preemptive conflict is the inevitable expiration of Trumpism itself. The president will sit atop the party so long as he remains in office, but he's building no intellectual foundation, no institutional infrastructure, and no policy agenda to provide the basis for a political coalition once his singular personality eventually departs. As with an airless monarch, all sides foresee the vacuum and vie to fill it. So, would love for you to expand on that sort of quote and provide some context for it. But I think the most important question is, what actually is or was Trumpism? And then was it actually even sort of real? Because there are people sort of like Jane Koston at Vox who write about the right, who sort of say that a lot of people like us who got into this whole idea of reorienting the Republican Party sort of bought into this vision that never really existed in the first place. So can you sort of articulate the sort of contention there?
2: Yeah, you know, I, I think there's some truth to the skepticism about. Trumpism. I I think there there is a Trump more than there is a Trumpism. Uh, Mm -hmm. And and that Trump as a figure uh, has been obviously incredibly important in American politics uh, and and for the right of center, um, but that at at the sort of conceptual level of ideas or or policy agenda, um, what he mostly did was talk about problems. Um, I think what he really brought in 2016 that sounded so different than really what anyone else on either side of the spectrum was talking about uh, was this idea that what what is what voters care about and what has gone wrong and what needs to be addressed is not just uh, the so-called economic pie. It's not just do we have enough economic growth and do we have enough redistribution so that everybody can buy lots of cheap stuff. It's actually a much uh, different and richer sense of um, of, of self worth and dignity and, and community and, and a way of life for a lot of people that uh, that felt like it was it was fading out of reach. Now I don't know that he would necessarily put it in those terms, um, but I do think something he's proved to in fact have is is a better, in a sense, finger on the pulse of of what a lot of people think and feel and care about than than maybe a lot of other politicians and certainly a lot of consultants and advisors might have had. And, and so I think when we talk about Trump or Trumpism, that sort of identification of a set of issues that we need to be concerned about and the kinds of policies we might therefore need to be talking about um, are very distinctive. Um, that being said, you know, I, I don't think it comes with a lot of, of intellectual foundation. And and I don't think, and I don't mean that in sort of the academic theory sense. I mean, I don't think it comes with sort of a an especially coherent View that you can build from, and say, okay, therefore, mm. here is here is the policy response. Here is the set of people and ideas and and strains of thought going backward that come together in this way. Uh, and and so I think the what we have is, you know, whether Trump wins or loses in fifty some odd days, the next day that that battle for the soul of 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 the right. Really begins begins in full the you know the the 2024 primary starts and and to some extent yes. that's the case in in any political cycle but it's especially the case when there is no obvious air, when you do have this kind of self created vacuum uh, and where you have these two very distinctive sides that have have very different perspectives one that really and 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 then they they will say this at least off the record really would like to go back to what 2016 would have sounded like if Trump hadn't been on the stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one side that it, many of whom were working on some of these ideas before Trump, but who now have much more space to talk about them, who really want to see conservatives assert their own vision and and carry forward a, a an approach in American politics that's been missing for a long time.
1: Wait, Oren, do you mean to say that the average GOP voter in 2015 wasn't energized by occupational licensing reform and ending the export-import <laughs> bank and opportunity zones. Like, what? What gives? This is so confusing. Obviously, you could hear my sarcasm there. Um, <laughs>
2: well, well, we we know now empirically that that, that that's not the, that 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 wasn't the case. Right. Um, but you know, look, I, I think, and and this is something I. I I think I wrote a piece for the American conservative talking about this exact kind of battle between what I would call a pre-Trump and a post-Trump future. I do want to say, you know, we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's not that occupational licensing reform is, is, is a bad idea, right? There, there are plenty of things that folks are uh, in the more kind of establishment, right. of Sarah talk about that, that are important and are worth talking about. I think the frustration, um, that certainly I feel and, and I suspect the typical voter feels is the idea that that is the most important thing or that that, right. that is really kind of the tip of the spear um, when, when the problems we have in this country are just... They're a lot deeper than that.
0: Now, Oren, you're telling me that the chief reason American wages have not gone up is because of haircutting restrictions in for barbers and for salon workers. Because if you listen to a lot of these libertarian groups, that's
2: actually why you would believe that wages have not gone up
0: in this well, country. I mean, the, irony, not I mean, the irony is actually yeah. even
2: worse because, of course... <laughs> Whatever you think of occupational licensing restrictions, they actually protect higher wages for, for, the, for the people who are working in those industries. Now, that right. doesn't mean they're the right way to get a good high-wage economy, but, but right. the idea that occupational license reform right. is what's going to drive wage growth, I think, is... is
0: that's tough. even better.
2: Well, And that's a good, better
0: segue. This is something I talk a lot here about on Rising as well, which is that... What MAGA ends up meaning, and maybe MAGA and Trumpism, any of these other terms, are actively harmful, which is that ultimately what's going to happen is that 2024 primary you're talking about, regardless of whether Trump wins or loses, is going to be a battle between MAGA actually means Tax Cuts and Jobs Act 2.0, neocon foreign policy. You're going to use the cloak of Trump, the figure, and you're going to basically try and disguise it. Um, Maybe, you know, you'll have adjustments to your China policy. It wouldn't be all bad, but that's essentially what it would look like. And then there is this amorphous thing that you and I have talked a lot about um, and have tried to publicize, which is the idea of an intellectual infrastructure that actually it's attached to the wants and the needs of GOP voters. It's an updated ideology that actually not only speaks to an electoral coalition, which would allow you to govern, but it believes in governing itself. So let's actually talk about what that infrastructure could look like and what it, what might have looked like if Trump had taken his job more seriously. I mean, first of all, let's talk coalitions, which is that what role—I mean, this whole podcast is called The Realignment. What role does the realignment of the voting voters themselves actually play in, in terms of policy? In both parties. That's the key right. thing here, yeah, too. Yeah, both parties.
2: Yeah, no, that, that that's a, a, a great point. And the you know, I think what what you see with the realignment that is is at least to some extent underway and and, and could continue and, and deepen, um, is that the the sort of economic challenges that we're talking about are shared by the vast majority of of voters. Yes. Now, in in a sense that's an oversimplification, but you know, I, I think among other things when when people kind of talk about the, and this is more mostly from the left, everyone focuses on the the one percent or the tenth of a percent or the hundred richest people. They're in a sense a sideshow. the 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 real kind of politically salient divide comes down to what you have is an upper middle class that's thriving, and and really what what you're talking about there is folks with 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 college degrees, and yeah. and actually the subset of those who both have college degrees and are in fields that use their college degrees, which is really you know not not that much more than half of those who even have the college degrees. Right. Um, so so you're talking about that group on one side that has, has seen really great economic results for, for a long time now. Uh, and then you're talking about everybody else who who has not seen great economic results for a very long time, um, who who are seeing the same rise in costs, especially in essentials like healthcare and housing and education. Um, and, and who are not seeing wages keep up and, and who are, and and who are not seeing also just, just the the culture and the society address them. And, and those things are also sort of drifting with, uh, with, with those who are doing better, I would say. And, and so Mm -hmm. the question is in a sense, how much of that group is going to, to align together and, and vote together. I mean, you obviously have many other ways you can. Slice people up. There are lots of non-economic issues that that matter to a lot of people that are going to divide folks. Um, you also have what the left is trying to advance, which is this more identity-based model, which says, you know, it's it, it, we're not going to talk about the wealth gap between the the, the rich and the poor. We're going to talk about the wealth gap based on the color of your skin, right. um, which I would say, somewhat cynically, is a is a great way to talk about the wealth gap if you're actually. Mostly at this point, advancing an agenda that that uh, that that advances the the interests of those who are doing really well, Mm -hmm. Um, and and so I think the real wait wait, wait, Orin, can you expand on that? That's that's fascinating. Can you expand on that point? Yeah, I mean, I think the 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 challenge for the left of center at this point is that if you think about kind of what the the core or the heart of the party is, to some extent the voters, but certainly more so the the kind of donors and and ideas folks and strategists and everybody, is is it has become a sort of fundamentally um, coastal urban elite. Um, party. And and you know, you see this when primary candidates try to use terms like Latinx or Latinx, however it's supposed to be pronounced. And then you turn around and find out that virtually no one who actually is Latino uses or prefers that term.
0: Ninety-eight percent. Um, so, to be clear, ninety-eight
2: it, it's, <laughs> it's percent. It, it is not a gesture toward the actual group of people who are presumably of concern. It's a gesture toward a very small set of liberal arts graduates with very radical social progressive priorities. And if, if that's where you're going to focus your political energy, but you also somehow need to maintain a large share of lower income voters in your coalition, how are you going to do that? The the only way I, I see certainly that they're trying to do that is by saying, well, this isn't actually about the economics at all. This is we want to make this about identity and, and sort of chopping people up into uh, in into these different ethnic groups and then and then trying to to build a team that way and and so if if you if, if all the energy and policy ideas are you know we're <laughs> wait let's let's forgive student loans and and let's do free college and and mm-hmm. and on and on um th- there is no coalition there unless you can hold on to an awful lot of voters who you are going to grab not for economic reasons at all
0: So this is really interesting. And let me play the critic here, right, which is that I'm a left wing Bernie Sanders person in this scenario. And I'm like, you know what, Oren, I hear you. This identity stuff drives me crazy. I wish the Democratic Party were speaking to my interests. All you know, I see these coastal elites that have taken over. I actually feel like I'm for the working class. And I hear guys like Sagar and Jetty and Oren Cass talk about this phenomenon, about the realignment and Republicans working for working or Republicans representing working people, but I look at the conservative institutions and I don't necessarily see any of that. So is a realignment real if voters are there, if a huge electoral constituency is there, but there are no actual institutions doing anything about it? I mean, look, obviously you're an exception to that rule, but- you're a lot outgunned by the Wall Street Journal editorial <laughs> board by the Heritage Foundation by people funded with billions of dollars i'm I'm not saying any of these things that these people do are inherently bad but they have an ideology which doesn't necessarily align
2: with ours what's your response to that well i I think that you know institutions like this are are going to be a lagging indicator um you know the the reason that that we are doing American compass and and have chosen to kind of strike out and try to Build a new institution uh, is is precisely in response to that challenge you describe because even even within the sort of political intellectual class you know within staffers on the Hill magazine writers these types of folks at the level of individuals you can find an, an incredible amount of of energy and and interesting new thinking and and grappling with exactly these set of issues. And, and that goes, you know, that, that goes within people who write for the Wall Street Journal and work at AEI and Heritage. Yeah, right. The the problem is just if you zoom out and look then at institutions, you don't see it at all. And I, I think that is a a reality of the way that institutions operate. I mean, this is this is, again, something conservatives should should understand very well that uh, and and sometimes this gets pitched as sort of an indictment as, oh, the donors control this, or the media controls that. I, I, I don't think, to your point, it, it's not that it's nefarious. It's that if you set up an institution and you know talk about one of these think tanks with a 20 or $50 million budget, okay, you've now built something that has a set of donors who care about a certain set of things that give the money to an organization whose leaders do a certain set of things, and have hired a whole staff who want, you know, think a certain way, that then pitch their ideas to a set of publications that are going to write about things a certain way and a a set of politicians that are going to carry it forward in a certain way. And and if you poke into the middle of that and say, actually, you know what, guys, I have a totally different idea. Um, Or even it's not a totally different idea. It's just a, Hey, we, you know, we should really shift this way or shift that way. Even if everyone in the meeting says like, Oh yeah, that's a really good idea. How you actually, turn the ship is incredibly challenging I mean who it, you have a chicken and egg problem who moves first you, do you now have to go persuade the donors that this new thing that they didn't think they were supporting is what they should support who's going to cover you if your natural consistent constituency isn't isn't going to be expecting this um, and, and so I think there's actually a really interesting analog to to the private sector where you, you see this all the time and and this is a lot of kind of you know the the thing in mind the concept of Um, of of creative destruction and and the work that folks like Clay Christensen, the the HBS uh, scholar always wrote about, is that huge successful companies get beat by new outside innovators, even when they can see the innovation coming and know it is better and have more resources in theory with which to, to beat it and do it better. Because if you're the big incumbent institution, you have no way to shift and do that other thing instead. That's not what you are built for. Uh, and, and so I think that's somewhat what we're seeing on the right of center and exactly why it's important to do, for instance, what we're doing with American Compass, where the goal is not to build yet another marble building in Washington with with our own $50 million budget. It's to force people to have the conversations that that it's just easier not to have because I think Mm -hmm. most people do have good intentions, they do mean well, they do want to actually interrogate these issues and, and come up with better solutions. But it's 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 sure easier to just not do do anything different than what you're already doing. And so we see our goal as saying what what are the issues that aren't being covered? What are the, you know, pieces of data that are being ignored? What are the proposals that don't get considered? And how do we just Say actually no you we' guys, we have to talk about this uh and and then I think the conservatism that has always been the driving force in the right of center um both numerically and and conceptually, I think has every prospect of of reasserting itself
1: yeah so something I worry about i I agree with everything you just said and If I sort of think about something I've changed my mind about in the past six months, it's been the sort of really negative role that the culture war could play in sort of arresting these sort of developments. Because if you look at what happened at the Republican National Convention, there was no real talk about. I think the good side of the realignment, right? So sort of leaning really like substantially into the idea that if you're looking at these states like Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, President Trump really needs to win working class votes. There was no sort of economic case. You're not really seeing the good version of 2016. You're seeing a lot of like frankly like resentment politics that's based around like hatred of the media. It's based around these sort of like obvious culture war issues that like left and right are going to disagree with. But the thing, and, and and largely like that's fine. Like that's always going to be something that's here, right? The, the, the GOP is always going to be the culturally conservative party. I'm not sort of and do that annoying center- right thing of saying change on social views and you'll win that's not <laughs> the claim but the issue I have though is that if these battles are fought on culture war grounds that's actually easy a one that's easier for like libertarian like economic priorities to sort of win on so you know if you sort of are able to sort of convince GOP voters that the most important thing in the country right now is the fact that like you know Nick Sandeman with like you know the Washington Post um, and that you know the media is hostile to social conservatism I think that's the biggest issue you can win an election on that. And I think, frankly, Trump's recovery in the polls, I think mostly has to do with those culture issues. The sooner this is a binary choice between the left's vision of the future and the right's vision, I think that's a good thing for Trump. But at the same time, that's also a vision that is largely superficial, right? It's not like Trump is going to get rid of the Washington Post. It's not like Fox News is going to be MSNBC. (laughs) But it is one where you could sneak a lot of tax cuts underneath that. You can sneak a lot of economic deregulation. So how do we think about that dynamic? Because it's one that really frustrates me.
2: Well, I think it's it's an interesting parallel to what we were talking about with with the left of center coalition that that has essentially um, combined an, an extremely socially progressive set of social issues to distract from a not especially helpful economic agenda, um, and and so you're absolutely right that there's a way of building a a right of center as well that that sort of does the same thing that that plays up the culture war issues and then has an economic agenda that doesn't really. Address a lot of the core issues we have. Um, you know, look, it it takes it takes leadership. It takes folks who are um, don't just think they can win a certain way, but are asking what the heck is the point of all this? What what have I really accomplished if if I win, but then don't do the things that are important and matter? Um, and and so that in in my view is why so much of this. Um, Fight comes down to the question of, of of what's going to follow Trump, because I think there are an awful lot of folks on the right of center who are and 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 you know not just pointy head think tank wonks <laughs> like me, act, oh. folks in in politics who, who are really leading on um, on on some of these issues in public who are um, who are eager to actually carry forward the right arguments for the right reasons, and so I, I think. A little bit to, to Sagar's point a minute ago, the, the task right now is to be to be laying that institutional foundation and making sure that um, when we have folks in our politics who want to be doing that, um, that that they have the uh, that 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 there is the research and the proposals and 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 the thinking developed, uh, and and not just that same set of institutions that uh, that that isn't really interested in going that direction.
0: So you said something important there, Orrin, which is people doing the right things. But, you know, let's let's define some terms. Um, and people who are listening here might have heard me talk on with the Andrew Yang episode. He asked me kind of like, what is conservatism? I don't really understand it. And I said, look, economic conservatism for too long was defined as economic libertarianism. And what new conservatives want to do is use the economy to achieve conservative and national ends. Um, what went wrong in American society? 1970, 1980s, and onward, that led to where we are today? What are the pro- economic problems as you see it? And what, even more basic, what is a healthy society? What is that society that we want to use economic ends to achieve?
2: Well, I think when, when we talk about what went wrong, um, it, it- there are some sins of commission, but, but a lot of what we've seen is sins of omission that I, I think we were emerging out of a period where so much was going right for America. And and of course there are huge debates to be had about, you know, how much of that is that we won world war two and the, the rest of the world was, was recovering from rubble, yeah. or, <laughs> you know, versus um, the, you know, our own political economy and, and, just the rate and nature of technological innovation happening at the time. I mean there, there there are tons of forces going on, but if you think about the kind of what we would say call kind of the the neoliberal economists, the the Hayeks and and Friedmans of, of the of the 60s who who really laid the the groundwork for this idea that well just you just let the free market do its thing and look at the prosperity it generates. Um they were writing and working at a time where that that seemed like a fairly common sense um, conclusion to to reach. And unfortunately, it's it's not true. Um, markets can generate good outcomes. You need markets to generate outcomes. You're not going to generate good outcomes without markets. Um, but but the market left to its own devices um, does not guarantee that you're going to actually generate the kind of growth and innovation. And prosperity that's that's widely spread, uh, and that that helps people, uh, whatever their aptitudes, wherever they live, um, whatever their aspirations are, to to build good lives. And so, uh, I think we we sort of we 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 let the horse run wild in a sense. I I don't know if that's a good metaphor. Hmm. We said, well, you know, the horse just ran around the track two times really well. So just that's great. Let's just. <laughs> He'll just keep running. and, and instead Be, it, be for, a little more specific there,
0: though. I mean, I, I know what you're talking about. Free trade, yeah, well, tax right. cuts. So, you know, right, so one let, example, yeah.
2: right. One big example is globalization um, mm. and, and the idea that, you know, if an American free market is good, then a global free market will be even better. And we don't need to worry about the fact that our trading partners are, you know, massive authoritarian communist regimes, um, you know, that that if if freedom is good, then free immigration must be even better. And we don't need to worry about, um, you know, the, the, either the rate of change or the kind of effects in the domestic labor market, um, that if investment is good, then private equity is even better. And we don't need to ask whether, you know, the kinds of investments and the ways that money being made are actually generating good effects. Um, you know, if, if, if innovation is good, then venture capital is even better, and we don't need to worry about, you know, wait a minute, what kinds of innovation are we actually investing in, on what timeframes? Um, so, so on, on all these different fronts, we sort of just we assumed, well, this has been working well, so it will it will just continue working well. And what we've seen instead is that, in fact, you can get a lot of activity that that doesn't work, especially well, um, and 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 the interesting thing about this this sort of set of issues is they're exactly the ones that we just have to bring back to the table and force conversations about. i mean, what i what I've found most interesting and 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 ultimately uh, kind of encouraging, if if not inspiring, is that when you actually have conversations, people people actually think about this stuff and change their mind. And you know i've I've sometimes been accused of quote, playing the China card. <laughs> which I would think is very funny. Like China is not, you know, China's not a card you play. China is one of the major geopolitical realities of, of the 21st century. So to say like, hey, I'm not sure your economic theory really accounts for China really well isn't some yeah. like debater's trick. It's, it's, <laughs> it's just pointing out that your economic <laughs> theory doesn't work really well, right? Well, and, and so so there are a series of these. I, I think kind of China in particular and more generally the, the reasons free trade might not work when, when across national boundaries is a really powerful one. I think finance is a really powerful one saying, well, wait a minute, are you telling me that if that private equity executive made a lot of money, it, you're, you're sure that's because he created a lot of social value. And this, this is what we got. We, we put a project out on this. And, and the response mm. in the Wall Street Journal was literally, it doesn't even matter if investors in these funds aren't doing well, if it generates large Fees for the private equity managers; those fees are a sign that they are creating social value. Yeah. And it's like, well, like, well, let's actually think, of, like, let's talk about that for a minute, because because mm-hmm. if that's not true, then a whole lot of stuff we have to start thinking about. Uh, and and then another one that we've started doing work on is is organized labor. You know, the the right of center's view has for a while now been like, well, labor's just you know, unions are bad. The the sooner we get rid of them, the better everything will work. Uh, and yet it is also an article of faith that tight labor markets are good. I mean, when right. when you're at the top of a business cycle and, and until the pandemic struck, you, Wall Street Journal editorial board was happy to talk about how great it was that workers were acquiring this power and wages were rising and firms had to invest in training. Um, now, behind the scenes, did they secretly think actually it would be better if this weren't happening? This is this is bad for shareholders. Uh, I don't know, maybe, but at least publicly they know they can't say that that obviously I mean, tight labor question. markets are what we want. What are tight? Like, so
1: define, can you define like, so Ed, two things, can you define what tight labor markets are? And then can you broadly explain the phenomenon from like 16, basically up until the pandemic that was sort of fueling that discussion?
2: Yeah. So a, a tight labor market just refers to the idea that um, there aren't a lot of workers available to hire. I mean, obviously the, the population is what the population is. So the, the, the right. workers are out there, but if, if, more and more of the the workforce is employed, and there are fewer workers on the sidelines looking for jobs, then you as an employer have relatively less leverage. You have to, um, essentially, you face a constraint. And there are various ways you can address that constraint. One way is you can bid up wages to try to win workers over and attract more people into the workforce. Another is that you can invest more in the workers that you have and actually try to Improve their productivity. Um, Another is that you can automate, which which some folks think is a bad thing and and hurts workers. But ultimately, automation is the only thing we ever—it's the only way to improve jobs and and get wages to rise. You make it so that workers can do more with with less, Hmm. and uh, and and that then allows them to earn more money as well. So. Ultimately, when you say tight labor market, you mean firms are constrained and they have to figure out how to uh, actually make workers more productive and probably pay them better. Uh, conversely, a loose labor market is when you've got a lot of unemployed folks sitting around and, and employers can call the shots. And so what, what we saw in, in the last couple of years before the pandemic were particularly you saw wages starting to rise and especially for for at lower wage levels, wages were rising faster uh, and then you saw things like uh, employers turning around and, and hiring people who are coming straight out of prison, hiring the long term unemployed, because if firms don't have any other choice, that's what they'll start to do. And they'll figure out a way to make it work. And, and you know, again, to this point about sort of what are these debates that we have to have and, and, and ways we have to think, you know, generally speaking, it, it's it's the free market enthusiasts who are most confident that you put a challenge in front of the private sector and they will solve it, right? Like right. that's that's the whole story. They they will innovate, they will compete, and they will get it done. And you say, well, that's great. Let's make the challenge that they don't that they are constrained in the workers they can hire. <laughs> let's let's make their yeah. challenge that they have to generate a profit with the workers who are here in America. And How then if then they, then then you say your hair on fire. So oh, that's impossible. Capitalism is going to collapse. Well, all. Mm. It's like no, actually, if that's the constraint that. Uh, that firms face, that's the one that they will go to work solving. And that's exactly what you need firms solving to, to have an economy that generates widespread prosperity.
0: So I think this is a very profound point. And this kind of gets to the crux of why we're doing this right now, which is you just released this new thing about conservatives believe that workers should have a seat at the table. It's caused a lot of consternation. Some on the right, some Marxists on the left say that this is a fake. Um, they're like, oh, you know, the conservatives are pretending to care about unions. It's all about a plant. I get that stuff all the time. Make the case, Oren. Um, why should conservatives care about organized labor? As you said, and I think, look, this is one of the most common and I think fair critiques that we get from left populists is if you people are serious, then you should care about unions. And Michael Lind, um, who has been on this podcast and I think has always made it such a profound point, is that in a way, a union is a very conservative institution. It's a non-governmental way for or- workers to organize and barter for wages and better um, conditions of life that don't require an outright federal intervention in order to achieve a optimal societal goal. So just talk a little bit about maybe why conservatives seem to hate unions so much in the first place. Um, Are you outright now pro-union? What does that mean? What does a conservative pro-labor posture
2: look like? Just go into all of that. Yeah, I think the starting point exactly as you just alluded yeah. to is is we have to clarify what we mean by union or, or organized labor. That the the way that unions work in America today is obviously very dysfunctional and I think a lot of the crit, the criticism that the traditional right of center has is is exactly right and increasingly you hear it from the left of center too a lot of the smartest and most thoughtful um, left of center labor leaders, labor scholars will say that just that this system does not make sense, is not working. And the answer isn't what the Democratic Party wants, which is just how do we force more people into these unions so they'll pay dues and su- mm. support Democratic politicians? Um, but but that, the system that we have is a very different question from the, the concept of labor, the concept that workers should be able to, to come together and organize. Um, and, and then exert power in the marketplace, um, have representation in the workplace, uh, be able to work collectively for, for their own interests and, and to come to each other's aid and support. That's, first of all, that's not an especially partisan concept. I I would argue that it's just a great idea. And and it's Mm -hmm. an especially great idea if you're a conservative, uh, who, who would prefer to see institutions in society solving problems. And you know one problem that it solves if and and we put out this statement from a bunch of conservatives that that tried to outline kind of three major reasons we think this makes sense. One is the economic challenge. How do you make sure that workers interests in the marketplace are being served and making sure that workers have power is a great way to do that. And and that comes to the point we were just making a minute about tight labor markets. Um, we should like it when workers have power. The 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 goal of the economy at the end of the day is not shareholder profits. And right. so to say, oh well, that's not as good for shareholders if workers have power, should not concern conservatives at all. We should we should be excited by the prospect of workers being able to exert power, um, and and being able to to get those economic benefits to them through their own action, not through redistribution from government. Uh, a, a second, and, and this is the one you just emphasized, Sagar, is is that these are a great substitute for government action. Um, that you can actually have much more limited government if workers have power because they can bargain, and you right. don't need, uh, you know, federal bureaucrats setting all of the rules of of the workplace if you actually can trust that workers are well represented and can reach good agreements with employers. And, and I would say that's just better per se as a way of of wanting to structure things, but also it gives more flexibility to the workers' and employers to to reach the bargains that that address what they care about most. Uh, mm-hmm. So I think that's really important. And then the third is that unions are just a, a foundational strong element of a healthy society. Um, you know, I think conservatives rightly worry about Um, What what they call the mediating institutions in in our civil society, the the things that you can be a member of that that you are a part of that are, are working toward the common good that are supporting concerns in your community that aren't just people in the government. And, you know, sometimes when we talk about what are these kind of softer social issues like, you know, the breakdown of the family, I think it's fair to say, like, well, gosh, I'm not really sure what government can do about that. Uh, But when you're talking about labor unions, there's a lot government can do. Right. Those are those are legal structures at the end of the day. And so conceptually, I think there's just a lot here for conservatives to like. Uh, And then in terms of policy, there's just a lot of room for reform. The U.S. system is actually a real outlier among Western democracies. If you look at how, uh, you know, particularly in Europe, if you look at some things Canada does, Um, there are lots of different ways to have unions. And I think conservatives should be at the forefront of saying, yes, we want to have unions and we want to have them work. Let's figure out how to have a strong labor movement in this country instead of let's just cheer its demise.
1: Yeah. So we're talking about the conceptual part there. But to your sort of second point about labor unions as a substitute for government, I'm sort of putting on my like you know, boomer conservative articulation here. Well, look, or in labor unions inevitably become intertwined with government, right? Like that's why they're spending, you, you actually spoke about this in your interview with New York Magazine, right? Part of the issue um, is that the unions that do remain in this country, because obviously the unionization rate is incredibly low are basically appendages of the Democratic Party in terms of spending the union dues on campaign tasks, sort of really working in from a political activist perspective. So I like, there's the concept there's the conception that from a philosophical perspective there shouldn't be a disagreement with the idea of unionization but like there is this history from before even the 1930s and the new deal of intersection between unions and government and political power so how should we think about that part right how do you what do you say to someone who says operationally i disagree with you even though i get the conceptual point you're making
2: yeah well one place to start is that there's a huge distinction between private sector and public sector unions Um, Everything that I've said and everything I'm enthusiastic about is private sector unions. Um, Public sector unions um, don't make sense for a bunch of reasons. I mean, Franklin Roosevelt said public sector unions make no sense. This this was not actually a a controversial conceptual point. Um, But in part because private sector unions have, have faded, they've been so economically ineffective, what we call labor in this country has increasingly been public sector. And so the, the priorities and the direction is increasingly that of government workers who unsurprisingly have no priority greater than bigger government. Um, so th- there's sort of a chicken and egg problem here. But in, in theory, a private a, a better private sector focused labor movement would also be inherently less big government focused. And, and there's a there's a strong tradition for that. You know, Samuel Gompers, who was one of the the original great labor organizers, he, beginning of the 20th century, even before we had today's legal structure, um, he famously hated the idea of, of government regulation and, and of unions trying to kind of push for more government action because he saw that as directly contrary to what unions should be doing, which is taking ownership and action themselves and, and giving workers a direct role and, and direct agency, and so I think done done right, uh, and and within a structure that says no 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 you can bargain about these things, I think you could make real progress. The the problem in America is we say okay the you know the federal government is going to set ever stronger employment regulation. I mean almost everything unions historically used to bargain about is now mandated by uh, federal law anyway. And then you say, okay, unions now, now and employers go find something else to bargain about, um, and and obviously that's that's not healthy, and that's going to lead to ever more bargaining about work rules and seniority and you know pensions and so forth. Um, if you said, look, we're going to have defaults, and and actually ideally you would have bargaining to help set those defaults, um, but but then in the workplace you you can depart from those. If if a retailer yeah. wanted to agree with workers you know, we're not going to pay time and a half for overtime, but we are going to give you guaranteed schedules. And and so people who want to work more hours can work more, people who want to work a few hours can work fewer, uh, and and we're not going to keep moving it around. That could very well be a, a great outcome for both sides and something that if you had strong worker representation, you could strike a bargain over, but you can't do that kind of thing today.
1: Mm-hmm. A quick follow up to your public sector union point because this actually is hot in the news and an example of how the political coalition shift about depending on the culture war button you're hitting here. What do you think about police unions? Because we're in this movement right now where you know the right is hostile to public sector teacher unions, but the left is hostile to you know public sector police unions but the broader structural critique and it's always fascinating to hear people yeah. like Jeremiah Casson talk about this the structural critique of both institutions is fundamentally the same thing so how do you how do you think about that topic i know you're not an expert on that topic exactly but how should we i think a lot of people on the right are having to sort of think about in a weird way how defend
2: public sector unions in the in the police case yeah i think it's important to to kind of be to to specify what is the problem with public sector unions. Because I I wouldn't say, you know, well if you're a public sector employee, you're not entitled to any representation. I I think both teachers and police officers should have some form of representation. It it could be healthy just like it is uh, for anybody else. The the problem in the public sector is that for bargaining purposes, uh you end up with unions essentially on both sides of the table. So the the union influence tries to influence who gets elected uh, and then the union also represents the workers, and it's almost as if the union were picking the managers in the private sector. That that would that would not that would not end up well. Well, and some so socialists
0: I, want that to be clear on well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. fair,
2: fair and, 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 and and I will say that would not work out very well. Yeah. Um, but and and so the the way to address it is is twofold. One is you can say, look, if if you are a coalition of public sector employees, you can't also be trying to influence election outcomes. like that's that that just doesn't fit um mm-hmm. and and or, you you are not there to actually collectively bargain. So as, as we've been talking about the things that unions do, there are lots of things that unions do that aren't collective bargaining. Um, you know, you might want to have union representation for purpose of essentially more collaboratively working out things in the workplace. You might You might wanna say, look, you know, this government agency, this local police force we have a, a local council that on which three members of management and three representatives of workers sit to actually regularly talk about and, and address problems and, and make improvements. Uh, that I think could be perfectly healthy in the public sector. Uh, you might want to say, look, teachers, you know, you you want to have a, a teacher organization that um, provides benefits, does training, uh, does all sorts of things. There, there are all sorts of constructive things a public sector union could do, but campaigning to elect the people they will then bargain with for better benefits is not one of them and and mm-hmm. so that I think is where the problem lies and and where you see problems with both for instance teachers and police officers and and in an ideal world you would see a compromise that said actually guys we 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 should probably go ahead and admit that that this doesn't make sense on either side um you won't see that today because the democratic party is 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 so beholden to um, donations uh, to, to financial support from unions, which are now predominantly public sector unions, um, to the point where you know virtually all organized labor money flows to the left of center. That is most of the yeah. kind of largest organized donors. Despite the fact that if you actually look at the members of these unions, they're not that far to the left of of the population as a whole. It's 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 almost a form of sort of political money laundering where you take the resources of a bipartisan group of workers and convert it into a entirely partisan stream of political cash.
0: Yeah. I mean, and this isn't just a public problem. I mean, on a practical level, Trump won like 40% of union households in America. And actually, if you saw what happened with... I can't remember who it was. I think it was the service workers union in uh, Nevada about how they were coming out, you know, agitating against Medicare for all or something. And then like the vast majority of their own members wanted to endorse Bernie Sanders. So on both sides, what you're seeing there is that membership doesn't exactly get what it wants all the time in terms of its political influence whenever it comes to actual union leadership, which is more the critique I think you're getting at. One of the things I wanted you to balance this a little bit with, Oren, is... Conservatives should care about labor. Now we should also care about finance. Um, but we need to. And when I say that, I don't mean that we should be catering to finance. We want to be building up finance necessarily. Although you know, a well-regulated or a, a robust actual financial sector working towards your national interest is a great thing. I would love to see it. What? Just talk a little bit about about maybe the over skewing um, in the way that conservatives have talked about finance. Particularly with regards to private equity, something that you mentioned earlier, I've kind of been all hot about this the last couple of days, which is that I took a look at the Forbes 400 wealthiest Americans list. There are 18 new billionaires who are on that list. Of the 18, the most common profession of seven of them was private equity. What that kind of told me was, okay, so the way to get to be on average, the way to become a billionaire in the year 2020 was to work in private equity. Is that necessarily a good thing? Um, And so can you dig through some of that for me?
2: Yeah, it's uh, they, you know, capital and labor are are kind of two sides of the coin. I've I've, I believe I've been accused of being a Marxist for speaking in those terms, but (laughs) the, the you can go back and you know just you go back to your macroeconomics textbook. the the, the inputs right. in the function are capital and labor. Those are use the proper we, terms. <laughs> yeah, right. Sorry, yeah. just just trying to just trying to use terms that, that will be familiar <laughs> to everybody. Um, that's that's what we have to work with. And and the right of center view, I think, has has essentially gotten both of them wrong in a related way. The the supply side, um, or you know, more. Uh, rudely referred to as trickle-down mm-hmm. model, has said, we are going to attend to the concerns of capital because when capital does well, ultimately everybody does well. And that story is just not true. It is it is just, it is just empirically, it, it can be true. Cap, they, they are compatible. We should want capital to do well, and capital and labor can both do well. But the idea that you just focus on capital doing well, and then trust that labor will end up doing well is is a ridiculous way to approach economic policy. And so as as we think about kind of adjustments that the right of center needs to make, one component of this is saying, we need to be a little bit more attuned to whether or not labor is doing well, not in the labor movement sense, just workers. And one way Mm -hmm. to do that is to have labor representation but we also need to be a lot less deferential to capital. We should stop assuming that if capital is doing well, well then that's great and everything's working. because there are plenty of ways for capital to do well that are either just not socially useful or, or are in fact counterproductive. and And I think private equity is is a particularly useful example. And, and I would broaden to say, you know private equity and hedge funds um, where you have these sort of massive pools of money, Trying to chase an investment return, and you know, as with this is a recurring theme in our conversation, you have to make distinctions. There are forms of private equity that are incredibly useful. I mean, the idea yeah. of you know investors are going to invest in a privately held company—that's great. That's neat. That's either good or bad. Sure. You never started um, a business, Orin? This is what they. <laughs> uh, this is what they always say to me. Right. right. Yeah. Uh, well, my favorite is the people who say, "Oh, yeah. well, if you know so much about finance, why right. don't you go start your own private equity fund and you'll do right. better than everybody else?" Yeah. Um. But the, the reality is that just because you are making an investment does not mean you are doing anything socially useful. You can And, and in fact, you can be doing something very socially harmful. And in fact, you might not actually be making an investment. Um, I, I think this is one of the things we really have to focus more attention on is that when we use the term investment, we just use that anytime an investor does something. But if yeah. I go buy 100 shares of IBM stock from somebody else who has, happens to own the IBM stock, I have not made an investment. I have taken one asset, which was the cash sitting in my account, and exchanged it for another asset, which was the IBM shares sitting in somebody else's account. No, No investment has occurred. IBM doesn't care. IBM doesn't have more resources to go do something. Right. And so likewise, in private equity, if you are a private equity investor, and what you are doing is going and giving money to a small private company that they are going to use to hire workers and buy new equipment and expand, and great, love it, sounds good. If what you are going to do is use that money to acquire control of the company, not actually put any new money into the company, if anything, load it up with debt and take money out of the company pay yourselves a large fee, maybe return some money to investors, and then sell it, often to another private equity firm, <laughs> um, you have not necessarily done anything of value. In fact, you right. may very well have extracted value in addition and fired to which,
0: workers orange, right? fired, fired workers or workers, you may have fired workers, offshore workers
2: probably right? you know you may have reduced investment that could have led to innovation and and one thing we don't talk enough about you have also sucked up the time and talent of a lot of our best business talent that, that could have been out there starting their own companies but instead mm. thought they could make more money doing this and so this is a place where Again, we have to say just because capital is doing well doesn't tell us anything. We have to ask what capital is doing, how they are doing well, and are they playing the role in the economy that is also going to contribute to widespread prosperity. And Conservatives have to feel comfortable asking those questions and making those judgments rather than feeling like, well, if, if I actually question this, that makes me a socialist or something. It doesn't. This is These are core questions of capitalism and economics, and conservatives of all people who care about relationships and institutions and incentives should be should be focused laser like on these things and wanting to fix them because if we want markets to succeed and and thrive in the long run we have no choice but to fix this stuff
1: yeah so that's the perfect pivot to our last quiz quick section. We've we started doing something new since you last came on, which is called realignment questions. We let like our listeners um, sending questions. I mean sending us a lot of policy questions, of which we are basically unqualified like, to give a serious <laughs> answer. Um so I just wanted to you did this with Ezra, and I thought it was interesting on your appearance there. Could you just quickly give your like 30 second sum-up? I mean, the important thing about your background is you know you led domestic policy for Mitt Romney's campaign in twenty twelve. So you obviously have a broader scope of engagement with these issues from a right-leaning perspective than just the sort of labor and capital stuff we talked about today. So quick answers, no feel, don't feel need to be exhaustive, but the student debt problem, what do you think about that?
2: So I think it's important to realize that we don't actually have a student debt problem. We have a college dropout problem. Hmm. Um, among people who actually complete college, student debt relative to their expected earnings is not going up. Um, And in general, does not look prohibitive. Um, What we have, though, because we've pursued this college for all model is is millions and millions of of people who we have told to go to college, told to take on student debt. And then either uh, we talked about this a little earlier, you know, earn degrees that just don't aren't aren't worth anything in the market and don't lead to jobs that even required a degree or even more so don't finish college at all. And now you have the debt. And you, and you don't have any income. And so that is the problem I would like to see us focused on. Um, and, and a piece of it could be student debt relief, but any student debt relief we do needs to be in the context of stopping that process and making sure that we're saying, uh, you know, we should be providing better alternatives for people for whom college is not the right next yeah. step. So and then pre- the last oh, piece of it is the colleges themselves need to have skin in the game. I mean, the, the way to solve this problem real fast is to tell colleges you are financing these students' education, uh, so don't admit somebody who you don't think is going to get value and graduate. And if you did that, you can bet colleges would actually solve a lot of this problem on themselves real fast. Uh, they could then bear some of the risk on the back end, and it would be in their interest to make sure they're admitting students, providing value to them, and then helping connect them to work after the fact.
1: Mm -hmm. So quick thing, just because your answer on college working for people who graduate sort of goes against conventional wisdom, especially parts of our um, Silicon Valley audience's sort of ideology, what you're basically suggesting is that college still makes sense and works if you can graduate. Because there is just sort of this discord that college is so expensive, you're taking on all this debt, there are all these sort of, you know, like, why take on that debt? But you're suggesting college works. So if you can graduate... Does college make sense still, and will it continue to make sense in the long term?
2: I think the, the answer is generally it depends, and and that's why See, part of the answer different. here has to be you want to set it up so that people are making good choices for themselves. Mm-hmm. If if you want to be a policy wonk, for instance, or you know, and 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 <laughs> and, and, and read economic research and write about it for a living, um, I would suggest you go to college. Uh, if you want to be an engineer, I would suggest you go to college. If you know, and and I should not say want and believe you have a good prospect of successfully becoming one of these things. Um, then, then yes, college makes a lot of sense. Now, would I would I reform some things about the way we do college? Absolutely. And we could have a whole other conversation about um, what I think is actually more so than an economic issue, a cultural issue, which is that we've defined this what I call an amusement park entitlement, where like people between the ages of eighteen and twenty two are supposed to like hang out and go to frat parties and you know, live in dorms and eat in dining halls and like maybe go to some class. Um, and that's that's a that's a ridiculous baseline standard and expectation. Um, so I, there are plenty of things I would change about the way college works, but a higher education for people who are going into certain fields absolutely makes tremendous sense. The problem right. is that most people who go to college either don't complete or if they do end up in a job that didn't require a degree. And, and that's where the, the we are wasting people's time and talent and resources and then burying them um, in, in debt that is, is going to be a long-term problem as well. I think that's an important one.
0: Okay, uh, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. Uh, climate change. What do you think, Warren?
1: Because well, here's, here's the question we get asked. The question because like, once again, like we actually have a decent number of like left listeners. They sort of say, what is the conservative response to the Green New Deal? That would be the question that they would ask.
2: <laughs> well, I, I would say two things about the, the Green New Deal and then, and then climate change more generally. I think, you know, the problem with the Green New Deal is that it is masquerading as economic policy, but is not economic policy. Um, it is it is a form of industrial policy, but it is one explicitly designed to destroy a segment of the economy that provides many of the right. best blue collar jobs we have in this country. So even if you thought you were going to be completely successful and create as many of these great new jobs as you said you were, there there is no net gain. Um, and 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 the way that you know that there's no net gain, and I think this is a really kind of interesting hypothetical to apply in general, when progressives are selling you on these pie in the sky win-wins, but, but especially in the environmental context, is you just have to ask yourself, let's say there was no such thing as climate change. Like literally, like I had a little box on my desk that just sucked all the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere mm. and we had no climate change to worry about. Um, would you still be proposing the Green New Deal? Like on purely economic terms, would you say doing this is a good idea? And if so, should we just go invent random other colored new you know deals to do as well for no reason except that we think it's a wise way to run the economy? And the answer obviously is no. No one would be proposing these things except to solve climate change, which is a way that you know that they are not actually good economic ideas on their own. They are things with costs and and mm-hmm. that will have real burdens um, that may or may not be worthwhile to solve climate change, but we should be honest about them that they are costly approaches to addressing climate change, not good on their own solutions for the working class. So that's part one. Part two, which then goes more broadly to the climate change question, is I think climate change is is a very serious concern. I think it's going to cause real costs and and will be one of the stories of the 21st century when we look back on that that was meaningful and and humanity had to cope with. Um, But I would say, A, uh, it is not the only one and it is not more so than many other challenges that humanity has to deal with. And the catastrophism that that goes along with it, where we heal here, you know, the planet may not be habitable. uh, And and, I mean, you could kind of run down the laundry list. Mm. That's just not true. Um, if you actually look at the economic models, if you look at the, the forecasts for all kinds of disruption, again, these are serious things we're going to have to cope with, but they are not singular and unprecedented and and kind of deserve to dominate our discourse. I actually wrote an article for National Affairs in 2017, specifically contrasting climate change with the prospect of a pandemic, as in sort of for the question of like, how should we think about these kinds of problems? And suggested we would probably be better off putting marginally more of our attention toward concerns like pandemics, which is something I would wow. stand by today. Um,
0: the, <laughs> good call. The,
2: the last thing to be in evaluating the policy is just that we need to actually be pursuing policies that might help. Um, and the reality of climate change is that the vast majority of emissions and all of the growth is going to come from the developing world. Right. And, and in a sense, that's a good thing. It means the developing world is growing. But it also means that solving climate change is a question of how do you, build alternative energy technologies in the developing world and get them to adopt it. And the only way that is going to happen is if you have better, cheaper technologies than fossil fuels. So Mm -hmm. I am all in favor of any and all investments, including something that are in Green New Deal proposals um, that would try to speed up the development and deployment of new technologies that could actually beat fossil fuels. I am not at all in favor of the idea of saying, well, let's just spend however many trillions of dollars converting the American system to zero emissions at, at major cost above what fossil fuels cost, that if anything is going to distract from trying to find things that that would actually be cheaper than fossil fuels. It's it's sort of the equivalent of saying, well, people in Africa are starving, so eat your vegetables which like vaguely feels like it has some nexus, but right. if you actually look at it, it's just, it is logically incoherent. And, and that unfortunately is what a lot of climate policy comes down to is well-meaning people concerned about a real problem, looking for something they can do about it. But as a result, proposing things that are, are wildly costly to us and, and don't actually address the problem. And, and that's what I think, I think conservatives need to do a much better job acknowledging the problem, um, focusing on ways to make adaptation better, but standing firm against sort of performance art. Um, I, it's sort of the, the environmental equivalent of security theater that is intended to make people feel better, but mm-hmm. really only makes us worse off.
1: So yeah. last question. um how should we think about the national debt? Because the thing that's interesting about this conversation is we didn't really talk about the size of government. We didn't talk about entitlement programs. It was really this sort of focused question there. But the most obvious question we actually get from sort of, let's say, like college student listeners who are just sort of like vaguely like Republican because their parents are Republican. What about the national debt? Like that, yeah. that seems to be like this huge thing But on the face of it, what, $20 trillion plus. How do you think of this? And how does that relate to what we've talked to today?
2: Uh, well, I guess there, there are two things I would say about national debt. One is that there's an interesting way it is sort of the conservative um, doppelganger of climate change for, for the left of center, where hmm. the, the national debt is a problem. And, and if it continues to rise, and if we continue to have to put more of our resources to interest payments on it, um, that is going to have real costs. Uh, and so sustainability is something we should be very concerned about. Um, we should also recognize that a lot of things that people on the right of center then say we should do about the national debt, like, you know, waste, fraud, and abuse, um, are, are sort of the equivalent performative efforts to feel like you're doing something that don't actually do anything, whereas actually uh, addressing the problem is a lot harder, um, so, so I think we should, we should recognize it as, as an actual long run problem that uh, from a sustainability perspective, it's, it's important that uh, we, we be building structures and be making commitments to future generations and so forth, which is where all of the, the real pressure is that are things we're going to be able to fulfill. Um that connects to, to the second thing I would then say about it, which is that it's really important to think about the actual underlying concepts and not just the dollar numbers. So, like, you know, MMT, modern monetary theory, makes a relevant and important point, which is that to the extent that you control your currency, you can do whatever you want with it. And, and that's a fair point. It's important to remember, though, that when we talk about these things, ultimately you are talking about things that you want to have happen in the real world. And so, you know, something I've heard lately is like, oh, well, you know, we should just do this, you know, trillion dollar a year stimulus package or, you know, the five trillion dollar infrastructure package as if the, the numbers don't matter. And it's true that the numbers as numbers to some extent don't matter that much. But what does matter is that you're talking about an amount of economic activity. You're saying we should shift X percent of the actual work that people do and the stuff that gets built in this country from thing A to thing B. And whether or not that's a good idea, and whether or not we actually have the capacity to do it well, those are really important, serious questions. And and talking in terms of money is really a, a sort of convenient shorthand for that. And, and so in that sense, it's still really valuable. It's, it's not practical to just say, well, let's spend $3 trillion on infrastructure next year. Not because we can't print $3 trillion, but because we do not have the capacity to do that much infrastructure construction next year. Mm -hmm. And so likewise, in the long run, when we talk about the national debt, even if you said, well, we can't default on our debt, the question is still how much of the nation's wealth and, and annual economic activity do we intend to try to move from one place to another? And if we keep promising one group, yes, 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 we are going to move ever more of it to you. And we have other groups over here that think they're still going to have it. We are going to have a real problem. And whether you want to talk about that in terms of size of the debt, level of interest payments, or other terms entirely, that's the problem. And and frankly, I think using the numbers in the debt to talk about it are are a fairly good way to do it. And so while we should be aware of where you don't have to worry about it, so for instance, one-time pandemic response payment, yes, that's fine. The fact that it does or doesn't add to the national debt it, it doesn't matter in, in real-world terms. We're taking activity that otherwise just wouldn't happen, and making sure that something useful happens instead. Yes. But when you're talking about long-term sustainable flows, those are real, and and we are we are getting ourselves in trouble, and and we are going to have to do something about it.
0: I think that's a really thoughtful answer, just a way to think about not just debt, but what wealth and other distribution in society is. Oren, this has been a fantastic episode. We really appreciate you joining us. Thank
1: you.
2: Oh, thank you guys. Always love talking to you. Yeah. Thanks, Horde.
1: Hope you guys enjoyed the episode. We really wanted to sort of take an opportunity to do something that's very wonky, that's very detail-oriented. If you're looking for an episode to share with your friends about what actually is sort of the new right looking like, this is exactly it. So quick announcement next week. Of course, we have a huge set of shows for you. We're bringing Matt Iglesias on to talk about his new book, and we're also going to bring on Crystal. So please send in your realignment cues. Send us the ratings. We've got a lot of really great stuff coming for you.
0: That's right. And as always, a shout out to our sponsor, the Lincoln Network for the season, letting us do the awesome work that we do here. We're going to see you guys next week.